Okay, so tonight um, we are very, very lucky to have uh, Wick Stuckey with us. Wick is a pastor over in Chapel at Chapelwood. Who, that's a, a church down the street. Uh, and um, he has done a lot of work with pastoral care. And so the reason that we invited him is he's a very... He's a great speaker and teacher, but he also has just a lot of hands-on experience in this area. And this is an area that every single Christian, at some point in your life, you're going to have an opportunity, right? So nobody goes through life unscathed. And so the people you love are going to have times when crises arise in their life. And it's, it's an opportunity to be a healing presence and also be a hurtful presence, right? So um, we all know that we don't want to say the wrong thing, but it's very easy to say the wrong thing with good intentions. And so we're tonight it's about getting a little bit of education on what, what a helpful thing to say actually is when someone's going through a time of crisis. So with that, I would like to um, introduce Dr. Stuckey. It's going to go downhill from here, I can tell. <laughs> it starts out with clapping. This is amazing. It's, uh, it's nice to be here. Um, I've been here once before. Uh, my friend Donna Watkins and I came and spoke to a group. I don't know if any of y'all were in that group, but we talked about a grief support group that we lead at Chapelwood. Um, we've been doing that uh, for the last nine years. Uh, but it just, uh, just a personal note, I've been a pastor at Chapelwood for 25 years, and um, most of my practice, my ministry has been in the area of pastoral care working with folks who are going through all sorts of uh, times of loss and grief and uh, just painful times. And uh, as Meredith said, there are things that we can do and say uh, to them that can be very helpful. Are there things that we can do and say uh, to them or around them that can be very hurtful? So um, I, we're going to, it sounds like last week y'all were doing some really heavy kind of theology. Well, tonight we're going to get really down to some practical stuff, some pastoral care stuff. So love it that you've chosen these different things on going deeper. But this one's going to be hopefully real life, and you can sort of access your own experience in life and in times that you've bumped into, uh, times where you've been the person who's been in pain and suffering, or times where you've been around others and you're trying to help them. Um, times of loss and crisis and grief can come in a wide variety of circumstances. And I'd like to read a few of them off to you and just see if these begin uh, to kind of co connect with you. Uh, here are just a few. Uh, the death of a loved one, a divorce, a hospitalization, a natural disaster, job loss, physical disability, a miscarriage, parenting struggles, an unwanted pregnancy, being an empty nester, spiritual crisis, the birth of a special needs child, a caregiver burnout, infertility, trouble with the law, or life-threatening illness. So I was told that one of the ways that you like to proceed is to spend some time talking together in smaller groups. And I don't know if you want to do it at the tables or not, if these table groups are. Are these too big, Meredith, or you like it like this? Okay, go for it like this. Here's what I'd like you to share around the table. What is your greatest experience of loss or crisis in your own life that you've ever experienced? And who or what was most helpful for you in dealing with that? What is the most serious experience that you've ever had 
with pain or loss or grief, and who or what was most helpful to you in dealing with it? So let me turn it over to you, and you guys can talk about that. Um, as Meredith said, suffering people are vulnerable people, and um, uh, we have to use uh, <laughs> compassion and, and skill in entering into their life world. And um, here, uh, there was a survey taken of, of people, um, caregivers, people that were trying to help other people, were asked to name the greatest difficulties that they had in relating to somebody who was in pain, and vice versa, people that were in pain uh, were asked uh, what the greatest difficulties were they thought for other people to relate to them. So kind of getting it from both sides. And here are the, the things that uh, they reported as the major challenges in those sorts of interactions. And you, I want you to listen to these and see which one or two or three you feel you can most identify with, which would be the hardest for you, okay? Number one, this is a, the, the worst, the high, the, the, got the most response, knowing what to say to the hurting person. And then two, understanding, empathizing with, or validating another's struggles. Number three, talking too much and listening too little. Number four, having a fix-it mentality, where you go into a conversation and you feel like, I've got to fix this person. And usually you carry this mentality, I've got just a certain amount of time to fix them, right? That's a fix-it mentality. Um, next, feeling discomfort around another person's pain. You know they're in pain. And it takes a lot of courage to move toward that pain rather than just avoiding it because a lot of folks will do that. So feeling discomfort in the face of another person's pain. Uh, the next thing was focusing on yourself rather than on the hurting person. Okay. Um, next, wanting people to quote get over it. Why don't you just? Are you still? Are you still suffering with that now? Are you still bothered by that? Haven't you moved on? You ever heard that? Haven't you just moved on already in your life? I got to tell you this great story. One of the pastors in my life a long time ago was one of the most empathetic, wonderful, warm human beings I've ever known. His wife, not so much. So uh, she and I, they were close friends. I love them both. But she had this famous, famous saying that when people were just still struggling with something, you know, after a long time, she would just say, haven't they got a pill to fix that? You know, that was, that's not what you want to say. Don't, don't, don't go there. Don't use that line. Um, next one, avoiding painful subjects or avoiding hurting persons. You ever been in a room and you know somebody's going through a struggle, somebody's in a place of pain, and folks will just flat avoid them. They will not want to get near them. They, again, they don't want to approach the pain. They don't want to touch the pain. Um, giving advice or being too directive. Minimizing the significance of the pain or suffering of the other person. Being judgmental. That's when you run out of patience, I think. Sometimes folks can get judgmental, like, why are you still suffering? Why are you still in that place? Why are you stuck? Um, wanting to hear only the positive. And here's one of my favorites. Responding with cliches, platitudes, or pat phrases. Anybody ever done that to you? They got their platitude, their fa Yeah, they got, they got, just, you love that. Um, another problem, identifying too closely with the other's pain or feeling helpless, like 
like, I just don't know what to do in this situation with this person. I have no idea what to say, how to, how to inter interface with them. Um, handling the anger of the other person who's suffering. Sometimes anger can really push us away. We can be very frightful of another person's anger. Um, knowing what would be intrusive with a person or what would be welcomed is another challenge. And then finally, getting people to open up. Any of those ring true to, to who, who, anybody? What, 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 rung, what rung a bell with some of you? Okay, anger, yeah. If you've had trouble with an angry person in your life, anger is something to run from. Somebody go, we'll just do this and this and this and you'll be fine. Or then just pray, answer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just, just pray about that. Just pray about that. Yes, over here. Not knowing what to say when someone is in pain, um, someone is having a medical issue, okay. and you wish you were there, and you just don't, you're not close right. in range, and you just don't know how to make them feel comfortable. Right, right. It was very helpless. Helpless. Very helpless in that situation. Uh, other folks. So yes. The, the responses, or like the rehearsed responses that yeah. yeah. It's like they're not really listening to me. It's like they've just got this one that they pull out of their back pocket, okay. just kind of put. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, I want you to know that when you enter into another person's pain, you're really uh, a guest in a holy place, and you need to think about it from that perspective. You are being, uh, you're entering into their life world. And that's a, that's a holy place. And you have to be invited in. Um, you can't barge in. Uh, it's not your space. Um, and you need to understand that that person is unique and try to understand them. Um, it's kind of like going into another person's home. When you go into a person's home, you don't just sort of walk in and go wherever you want to. They have to invite you into certain parts of their home. You wouldn't feel comfortable if somebody just walked into your home and they said, well, I'm going to head into the master bedroom. Like, that's kind of our private, our private area. You can stay out here in the living room, but um, you're not invited into the master bedroom. Well, that's the same way when you're walking into somebody's life who's in pain. They are the host, and they get to control how far they want to let you in and what they need to keep private and kind of keep you out of. And at times, that, that space may change. They may let you further and further and further in. Probably they will if they really perceive you as a, an earnest caregiver, but you don't just barge in. And you certainly don't try to rearrange the furniture and say, this is how you need to fix it. This is how you need to, to take care of your life. So um, every hurting person is unique. Every one of them is an individual. And um, they are the ones who offer the hospitality of letting you into their heart, letting you into their life. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is um, that every person, yeah, yes, yeah, well, yeah, you bet. Because when you said, so what are, that's a problem I have. What, what are the cues you listen for so that a person is saying, I, you know, I want to let you in? Rather than just being in, you know, what I see mostly is people forcing themselves to help other people. Right. Not really asking that question, what can I do for you? Right. But what, I mean, you're professional at this. What do people say when they want to invite you into their pain? I think one of the things, that, and then we're going to get to this later on in this presentation, but I think one of the things that, that gives me a cue that it's okay to move in further is, is when they'll, they'll talk. And, and I don't have to talk and fix them. 
and I don't have to, have to ask the perfect question, but I just have to be present with them and let them talk to me. And as they talk to me and they begin to divulge and open their hearts and open their life and open the, the pain that they're feeling to me, that invites me in closer. And then I can ask further questions to, to understand better the pain that they're in. So it, it's almost flipping it around. It's not like, how do I ask just the right question? It's more like, how do I really listen? How do I be quiet and, and let them begin to tell me? And, and, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. Sometimes you just have to sit there in silence. And that may be very awkward to sit there with another person, a person who's in pain in their presence, and you're simply silent in their presence. But that may be all that they can handle right then. Again, you're trying to cue, tune yourself into where they are and listen to their heart. Talk about some specifics that you might, what you might say, and what you might do a little bit later. Um, one of the things I want you to know is that everybody is socially conditioned by their family of origin on how they deal with these painful circumstances. We all come out of a family of origin. We've all watched our families deal or not deal effectively with uh, pain and grief and loss, and we pick those up, those those ways of doing and ways of being in those situations. So. Um, um, it's important to, to try to understand that about who you're dealing with. And I want to give you an example. Uh, this comes from a book that's called Getting Grief Right. And this is just a way that, that somebody uh, would explore um, kind of what a person understood about grief and loss around a death uh, by asking some of these questions. This is like kind of a small group thing that, that we work with at Chapelwood. By the way, this book was written by a guy named Pat O'Malley that I was in college with. We did college uh, ministry at the University of Texas back in the 70s. And I looked on the New York Times bestsellers list, and there was my buddy's book. I couldn't believe it. So he was, he was, it's an amazing book. If you ever want to do a grief study, if you've got people in your church that are hurting, if they've lost a loved one and they need to process the grief, work through this book. It has, it has a group uh, deal in the back, uh, a, a, a guide. You don't have to read the whole book to do it. You can just do the study guide. It's really cool. But this is an example of some of the questions that, that, that this guy suggested. When people are trying to understand the person's family history on death and how they process death. So these are questions that, that he would ask. What is your first memory about death? Um, have you suffered other significant losses before the one that you're currently in? getting a little deeper. How would you describe the culture of your family of origin as it relates to death or grieving? How do y'all do it? Because they picked up a lot from that. Uh, is your family open about expressing loss or mourning? Or is your family adverse to it? Does your family have rituals associated with death, death or bereavement? If so, what are those? Tell me about those. So you guys are great talkers, and I hate, I hate to turn you back over with another question, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Everybody did it in a unique way in your family. And I want you to share with one another 
what you learned from your family of origin about processing grief or pain or loss. Could you say that again in front of the microphone? Okay, sure. I'm, I'm, I forgot that this is a microphone. Yes. Uh, this one? No, the other one. This one. Okay. What did you learn from your family of origin about processing pain or grief or loss? We all came out of a family of origin. We all suffered through these sorts of things as young people growing up. We learned from our parents or grandparents what to do or what not to do. Um, and sometimes families did a really good job of that, and sometimes families just pushed it all down. It was a classic example, how many times have we used this in our sermons, uh, pushing a beach ball down. It's going to pop up. So if, you've, if, you've, if you haven't dealt with the pain or loss or grief, uh, and you just pushed it down, like some families do, it's going to pop up in other ways. It's going to come out sideways. Anyway, talk amongst yourselves about how your family of origin processes those sorts of things. All right. Y'all continue, continue these conversations uh, when this is over. These are important conversations. They really are. Let me, uh, let me just share something, um, a, sort of a personal story um, about family of origin and dealing with grief and loss. My family uh, was, was one of the worst. They had to be one of the worst at dealing with this. Uh, my father was an old, tough old Marine. And uh, his uh, motto in life was just stiff upper lip, keep on going, don't feel anything, just keep on. And um, I lost a brother, my youngest brother. I'm from a family of three boys. My youngest brother passed away about 16 years ago when he was 52. <laughs> Um, way too early, lung cancer took him, and um, I, I, w we were just torn up. And, and, but I was astounded that my, my parents never really seemed to grieve his loss. And they just kind of kept soldiering on, and, and it's like we, they went back to life as normal. And I found myself many times going, you just lost your son. Don't you want to process that? Don't you want to talk about that? Don't you want to get some help? Do you need to talk to a professional? Do you need to get in a grief group? Nope. Going to work, working hard, staying busy. And some people just stay busy. They'll, 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 that's one of the things a lot of people say, well, I'm just going to get busy again. Well, two years ago, my mother died. And that really hit him. Finally, he began to feel the sense of loss and the sense of grief. And he never cried neither one of them, well, my mama cried, but my dad never cried when my brother died. But finally, when his wife passed away and he began to really feel the grief, um, he cried like a baby. And he still does, two years after the fact. We'll sit down and start reminiscing and talking about her, and the tears will come. And, and let me just say, one of the things that I've learned from my experience is that tears are important. They're cleansing. They're powerful. Uh, in our grief group, we have a motto that says, if you want to heal, you have to cry, and you have to uh, write, and you have to talk. You have to talk about your feelings. You have to get them out. Another famous quote that I, we've talked about many times around our church is that uh, feelings buried alive never die. If you, don't, if you don't process them, if you don't process them, and you keep them inside, you're burying them alive. And they, they never die. They're still in there. They need, to, they, need to be, they need to be exercised. There's another guy in my grief group, and his wife died a few years ago. And he, he has something he says over and over again. 
that's one of the other things I've learned, that people in grief have to tell the story many times. They have to talk about their loss over and over and over, and somehow by talking about it, they're, they're healing from it. This is not like flip a light switch process. This is a long-term process, and one of the things that you have to do is tell the story and tell the story. That's what this O'Malley book is, is about. It's finding, it's the, the subtitle is finding, finding your story of love in the sorrow and loss, sorrow of loss. And the way you find it is by continuing to tell the story. But what this man in our grief group says is, I never have understood grief my whole life. When people were grieving, I could not identify with them. I just flat never felt it. I never understood it. And I didn't know how to talk to him. And I just kind of, he just kind of would kind of keep on going through life, oblivious to other people's pain until he was in the pain. And, and, and not to point the finger at the guy, but what he says all the time now is, I get it. I finally understand what grief is. And that's kind of what my father's situation is. He finally understands what grief is because he's feeling the grief of the loss of his wife. And you must feel it. You must touch the pain. Um, we talk about oftentimes how you, you don't want to camp out in the pain. You don't want to get into the pain and just stay there and it, and it overwhelms you. You don't heal from pain by being depressed. But the opposite end of that spectrum is you never touch the pain. So a, a kind of a, a picture that I like to use, it's like putting your toe in the water. You, put, you, you touch the pain a little bit, and then, you, then you, rem, you get away from it for a bit. But then you touch it again. And it gradually uh, becomes easier to touch the pain and process the pain. But if you deny it, if you avoid it, um, it's going to come back to bite you because those feelings are still there. They're still alive. Um, so. Moving on to the next point in my outline, what you bring to the relationship or who you bring to the relationship. Um, the most important thing you need to realize is that you're not in it alone, that God is in it with you. I like to think about um, the healing relationship as a, a three-person relationship rather than just two. It's not just you and the person you're trying to help heal. It's God and you and them. It's always a three-person deal. So know that you're not in it alone. But you are the instrument, you are the vehicle that incarnates God's love. You incarnate, that, that's how God heals in the world. God doesn't just drop a pill down from heaven and say, take one of these and you'll be fine. He uses us, believe it or not. And this is one of my favorite quotes, uh, a, a saint that I love. I, I did a doctoral dissertation and, and she was my main subject. Her name was Teresa of Avila. And here's one of her most famous quotes. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body on earth but yours. So you are a vehicle of God's healing in people's lives. And it's a very sacred duty, a very sacred place to, to enter into another person's life as we've talked. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about, too, is just the power of presence. Because we incarnate God, 
God, has, God heals through us. Um, there is power simply in our presence. Jesus came to earth as, as incarnate, God incarnate, and that's, that's one of the most powerful things you can think about. Meditate on the fact that God, the way God chose to communicate his love to the world was by being present with us, sending his son in person as a, as a human being. So there's power in presence. Um, and oftentimes, presence alone, just showing up, just being there for another person, is the most caring thing you can do. You don't have to have all the magic words. You don't have to know exactly how you're going to deal with every situation, but just show up. Just the fact that you showed up communicates so much to the person that you love and that you care, and God's loving through you as you do that. Here's some quotes um, that from, from some folks who found themselves with people showing up in their lives when they were in times of crisis. A woman who was 25 when her mother died said, I don't remember anything that they said, only their presence and their prayers when these folks showed up for her. Another said, when people came and were present for me, they were a gift. I felt love, compassion, and acceptance of the fact uh, that I preferred silence over small talk. I was able to be lost in my own thoughts, yet not alone. They helped make a sad time a little more bearable. These folks didn't come with magic words. They simply showed up. They were incarnating God's love. Uh, that's what this is about. Um, one respondent said, their being with me helped me remember that I'm never really alone because God is always with me. A human presence makes God feel very near instead of far away. There is a Quaker author named Parker Palmer that I have uh, read and love. This guy, he is, he is amazing. Um, and he um, has a, a blog called The Gifts of Presence and the Perils of Advice. Just sit with that one for a while. The gifts of presence and the perils of advice. Because when people are in pain, they don't need advice. They need presence. And he wrote, he wrote this. The human soul does not... Y'all listen to this because this is powerful stuff. The human soul does not want to be advised, fixed, or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed to be seen, heard, and companioned exactly as it is. When we make that kind of deep bow to the soul of a suffering person, our respect reinforces the soul's healing resources, the only resources that can help the sufferer make it through. The sufferer is the one who has the resources for healing, and God. Uh, and, and we can't come in with a magic word, a simple fix, and make it all go away. They have to do that work themselves, and it takes time. It, it's a process. Um, Palmer, in his writings, talks about a time where he was in a deep, deep siege of depression, and he, he told this story. He said, during my depression, there was one friend who truly helped. Um, with my permission... Bill came to my house every day around 4 p.m., and he sat me down in an easy chair, and he massaged my feet. That was his act of caring. Uh, he rarely said a word, 
but somehow he found the one place in my body where I could feel a sense of connection with another person, relieving my awful sense of isolation while bearing silent witness to my condition. By offering me this quiet, compassionate uh, experience for a couple of months, day in and day out, Bill helped save my life. Uh, that, the power of presence. This man didn't say the right thing. He simply showed up and he massaged this man's feet who was in depression. He couldn't, they couldn't have a conversation. It was a, a meaningful, but his, his actions, just showing up and doing that, uh, let, let this man hang on till he recovered and came, kind of came back to life. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is what to say after you say hello. And we've kind of said, well, how do we talk to these folks, okay? I'm going to give some, some pointers here on that. Number one, keep it simple. They're not here, they're not, they don't want to hear a lecture. Keep it very simple. Um, you could say something when you walk in like, it's good to see you. You're not asking for anything back. Just saying just what you feel. It's good to see you. Um, and then in a general way, a, a hard thing to ask people is like, tell me how you're feeling. Tell me how you're doing. That, that might be too much too soon. Uh, so don't, don't push hard on that uh, when you're dealing with somebody that's really, really struggling. But one, another way of kind of getting at that uh, is to say something like, well, fill me in on what's been going on. It's more of an open-ended thing. Fill me in on what's been going on. They can go all kind of directions with that. Or what's been happening. Uh, and then just be quiet and listen. That's back to what we were talking about before. Just you're creating space and you're there really primarily to incarnate God and to listen, not to have the magic words. Um, listening more than talking leads to success and caregiving. Listening is the closest thing that you will find to a magic bullet in your caregiving kit of, uh, of skills. Here's some quotes that people gave who had been listened to. My brother died from a drug overdose. A few let me tell my story over and over. They let me be sad without trying to change me. When I was divorced, a close friend was an excellent listener. He was there for me whenever I needed him and did not offer any simple answers or pat advice. Again, simply letting people talk, letting him tell the story, and listening and receiving it. You're holding, you're holding the pain with them. You're there in, in the pain with them, so they know they're not alone. Um, another person said, after infertility treatments, I lost my twins at 21 weeks. A woman from church, whom I knew only casually, called and said that she had lost a child at 34 weeks. She came over to my house, and she just sat with me, just sat. And she listened, and she cried with me. That was irreplaceable. Another thing that you can do, you really need to do, keep in mind, is to, to follow the other person's lead. Let the let the care recipient lead the conversation. Don't try to dig in. Let them, again, let you into their house uh, as, as far as they want to let you in. So to do that, you have to um, follow their lead. So initially expressing uh, your sorrow is important, uh, but then um, 
uh, kind of rephrasing something if they begin to talk about how they're feeling, uh, saying something like, it sounds like the last few days have been really hard for you. That's kind of mirroring, uh, to, uh, to mirror back to a person what they're telling you as they describe their pain. You're not solving it, you're just, you're listening. You gotta really listen to what they're saying, but reflecting it back validates it to them. And that helps them really get in touch with the, the reality of what they're feeling. And that is healing, that's helpful. Um, focus on the other person. The conversation at that point is not about you and them. It's not an us conversation. It's all about them. You're focusing on the, the person who needs the care. Um, so focus on them. Ask open-ended questions. Um, those that provide for an opportunity for more than a yes or no answer. And here's some examples. Here's a closed question. Are you angry? Yes, I'm angry. That would be a real quick answer to that. That's, that's a closed question. An open question is, how do you feel? They can go all over the place with that. They can go all, since several directions with that. Another example of a closed question. Do you need help? Nah. That's a quick, they could say nah to that one. An open way is saying, how can I help? A closed question. Are you overwhelmed? An open question. How are you feeling with all that's happening at once? What to do when there's nothing to say. Sometimes you just find yourself in that position. There's just nothing to say. Silence may be awkward, but um, try to be comfortable with it. God can work in the silence. Um, silence can mean different things. It can mean that the suffering person is kind of overwhelmed, that they don't know the right words to say. Um, it can mean that they're processing what's gone on before. So it's okay if, if, if there's nothing to say. As I said before, crying is good. It's okay to cry. It's okay to cry with the person. It's okay to let them cry in your presence. Um, tears are, are healing. So now what not to say, what not to do, things to try to avoid. Um, we said before, platitudes, cliches, other expressions, the, like those, those are words that hurt rather than heal. You're minimizing a person's pain if you just dismiss it with a platitude. Here are some examples. I know how you feel. I mistakenly said that to a guy one time and he said, you have no idea how I feel. He'd lost his wife. And, and I'd, I'd, I'd lost some significant people in my life and I was sort of trying to commiserate with him and I said, man, I know how you feel. And he just, boy, just like that, he said, you have no idea how I feel. And he was right. Um, here's another great one. It's for the best. It's for the best. Um, he's at peace now. Or she's in a better place. Boy, that does not help me. Um, it's good he's not suffering anymore. That doesn't seem to, no, that's, that's not helping me. She's with Jesus now. She's with Jesus. So that, that again... Uh, keep a stiff upper lip. That's my dad's motto. And here's one where people try to bring in scripture, but this is not in the Bible. God will never give you more than you can handle. 
then I feel like I've let down not only you know everybody else, I've let down God too, because I'm not handling this very well. Or this is God's will. It was God's will that you you know you go through this. Isn't everything God's will? I don't feel like it is. I don't feel like God causes suffering. Here are seven simple but profound ways to care for people who are suffering. Number one is to genuinely pray for them. Again, we bring Christ into the caring uh, activity. We're not in it alone. So genuine prayer. Um, how many times have y'all been in this situation? You know, somebody's in pain, they're, they're hurting, and somebody comes along and just says, I'll pray for you. And then he has to keep right on going. It's like, you know, next. Here they go. It's like, you're going to pray for me? What I love is when people go, can I, can I pray for you right now? And they stop and they'll pray for you right there on the spot. I feel cared for then. I feel sort of dismissed when somebody says, I'll pray for you, and they just keep right on going. Genuine prayer. Number two, showing up, like we've said, being there. Your, your presence. Um, if you have an impulse, and I believe this is how the spirit works, if you have an impulse to call somebody that you think is suffering, that you know that's suffering, do it. Follow up on the impulse. Don't dismiss it. I think sometimes we totally miss what God's trying to do in us and through us by not paying attention to that still small voice that nudges us from the inside that says, call them. Uh, talk to them, send them a note, send them a card, whatever it, whatever it is, but, but follow up. Um, naming the elephant in the room. Don't be afraid to say the words, I'm sorry that John died. Uh, you know, folks can dance around that like amazing ways. They don't want to say death. They don't, we avoid death in our culture like, like better than anything else. We'll talk about all kind of stuff, but we'll talk about death. Uh, so name the elephant in the room. Uh, I'm sorry your, 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 your wife died. I'm sorry that your husband lost his job. Uh, the next thing is uh, reminiscing. Uh, grieving people want to share their memories. They want to talk about the person that they've lost. Um, warm memories, humorous stories, um, character traits you admired in a person, share that. Let them to, and let them say the person's name. We have a whole special service at Chapelwood uh, every year around Christmas time, and it's called Christmas Without Them. It's for people who've lost a loved one during the year, and you know how the absence of a person is just highlighted during the holidays. You have family traditions. They're not there anymore. They can't be at the table. So we have a special service of, of healing uh, for, and prayer for folks who've lost loved ones during the year. And um, one of the components of that service every year is whispering the name. When a person dies, you don't hear their name called as much as, as you used to, and, and you, they're out of your mind. They can kind of get out of your, your thoughts and, your, and out of you. So to remember them, to bring them back, we speak the name. And people love that. It's so it's therapeutic to hear the name. So reminiscing. Um, another thing is asking other people in in a maybe a, a constellation of folks who are, are hurting and suffering, not just the person who's had the major loss, but other people 
that are connected to that person, how they're doing too. If a woman has a miscarriage, don't just check on her, check on her husband. How's he doing? He's feeling some loss too in this situation. Uh, next is to offer some practical ways to help. Uh, taking over uh, daily chores, life has to continue to go on for people. So offering to help in practical ways is really a, a wonderful uh, way to provide care. Um, preparing meals, caring for children temporarily, uh, doing household chores, providing transportation, going to the store, running errands, uh, caring for pets and other animals, or making phone calls that the person needs. Those are concrete ways of caring. And, and one of the things that, that I've learned too is, is not to say, can I do anything for you? And just sort of, because they're going to invariably say, no, I'm okay. But kind of look around and go, and I know they need to go to the store. They're out of, they're out of food. So I'm going to the store. Let me get you. Give me your shopping list. And, and do something concrete that way. Don't just do a general offer to help. Um, another thing to do is to follow up in the months to come after a loss. Um, I have a, a system that I use after uh, every person whose funeral I do, I call their loved one uh, three months and six months and nine months and one year after the loss on those anniversary dates. Uh, one of the things you learn when you work with people who've uh, lost a loved one is that anniversaries are huge. They kind of, the people, they come back to their mind and heart in powerful ways on anniversary dates, whether it's that person's birthday or it's an anniversary day or it's the anniversary of their death day. All those, those sorts of things are really powerful. So to the extent that you can remember those um, and follow up with people, uh, that's very helpful. I realize my time has come to an end, and what I'd like to do is read to you a list of things that I just kind of came up with, the things I've learned about caring for those going through crisis, loss, and grief. And some of these we've talked about tonight, but I just put together a list of, of some things, and I'll conclude my remarks with these. Number one, that the sufferer sets the timetable for the healing. I don't. It's on their time schedule. And usually, um, number two, the healing process may take much longer than you wish. The caregiver, you as a caregiver, cannot hurry that timeline. Um, we don't get over the loss of someone that we love. You don't get over that. How do you get over love? You can't stop loving somebody. You're going to always love them the rest of your life. So you don't really get over it. You're going to always love someone that you've lost. Next, grief and healing from loss is not a linear experience. One of the things you have not heard me talk about tonight are theories of, uh, of, of grief, uh, stage theories that some folks use. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has one, and it was, you know, it was the thing. Everybody had to read the Kubler-Ross book on death and dying. And she had a stage theory that, that, that she said, everybody goes through these stages, and this is how they follow them. Um, they start out with denial of their loss, and they're angry for their loss. Then they bargain with God about their loss, and then they have depression, and then finally they accept it. And that's the stages of grief. Well, from my work with people, they don't do it in that order all the time. They're moving all around. It's real messy. 
So I, 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 don't, I don't go through that, that, that it's a linear experience. Um, next, as we've said before, tears are your friend. Tears are cleansing. Um, I'll, I'll be very candid with you. I, I, I went through a loss one time. It was, it was the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life. And I was in a Bible study with some men. We met early in the morning. And uh, rather than it being a Bible study, it was more of a prayer time. We always said, you know, we always come and we say we're going to uh, pray, uh, but we always kind of leave that to the very end and we don't ever really pray. So we're going to start our meetings off with prayer. But what it ended up is prayer took the whole time. We barely got to the Bible study. But when I was going through this very, very painful time, I would sit at a table just like this with a group of men, and all I could do was cry. I didn't have a whole lot to contribute to the group, but they sat there with me in my pain, and they let me cry because what I was dealing with was just beyond words, so hard. Um, and I learned that, that those tears were cleansing and healing. So... Don't run away from those tears. Lean into them. Said before, the three healing exercises are cry, write, and talk. Um, God's spirit is the healer and the comforter. And your job as a caregiver is to create space for that comforter to work. Next, we said don't, don't use cliches or trite sayings or quote scripture. I even say don't quote scripture. Uh, that may sound heretical, but last, the last thing a lot of people need is for you to quote scripture at them. Just pray for them. Use the scripture to talk to God yourself. Um, do not speak the word, but be the word. Incarnate the word. Um, silence may seem awkward, but it's often a better healer than words. There's no quick fix or silver bullet, uh, for healing to occur, it takes time and loving compassion. Let people tell their stories of loss over and over. Listening to another person's story of pain and loss is often the greatest gift that you can give them. And those, uh, finally, those who experience suffering, crisis, pain, loss, and grief will if willing to process that and feel the pain and work through their pain and loss, those people can become incredibly uh, compassionate agents of hope and healing in the lives of other people. There's a book called Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen, and it's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. We all are wounded in certain ways to the extent that we have um, allowed God to heal us from those wounds. Uh, puts us in a unique position to help another person who is wounded in a similar way. I work with Stephen Ministers in our church. I don't know if y'all do y'all do Stephen Ministry here. Mm -hmm. Stephen Ministry is a they're they're trained lay caregivers, people that go through 50 hours of very intense training to come alongside other people who are going through crisis, and it's really like multiplying your pastoral staff by you know an exponential number. But one of the things that that we've learned is. I don't want somebody as a Stephen minister who's never experienced pain or brokenness in their life. We want people who've experienced pain and hurt uh, so that they can offer that care to somebody else who's going through that same sort of painful experience. Um, 
a divorced person is the best equipped person to talk to another person going through a divorce. Uh, a, a mother who's lost a child, like the illustration I used earlier, is the best person to talk to a woman who's just lost a child. So, um, I was told that I need to give you some takeaways, and so I think Meredith has yeah, those. Out, so if you want to start talking about them, okay. Uh, and Casey told me that they're kind of like uh, stepped up, you know, start with something simple and then make it a little more challenging and something that's more challenging still. So here are the things that I would like to challenge you to do in the week ahead. <clears throat> Think of someone in your life world who is going through a time of pain or loss or suffering and covenant with yourself that you're going to pray for them every day for a week. That's number one. Pray for somebody going through pain or suffering and do it for a week. The second is to write a note to someone that's going through pain or suffering or loss using some of the insights that you've picked up tonight. And this third one is kind of, kind of challenging, and it may take longer than a week. It may take months for you to find yourself in this position. But I said keeping the eyes and ears of your spirit open, if God presents you with a person who's going through pain or loss or suffering, reach out to them personally and offer them your caring presence. In other words, put all of this stuff that we've talked about tonight, try to put it to work in the life of another person. This, again, is something that you're going to be, need to be sensitive to God's leading, God's spirit opening a door rather than you just barging in on somebody. But I would bet that there's, there's somebody in your life world that is going through a time of suffering right now. And, and if you just sort of sit with that um, and um, God opens a door, I want to invite you to step into it. I'll, I'll give you a classic example. There is a, there's a dear woman in my neighborhood who um, used to walk the streets with her husband. They would get out and walk, exercise together. And um, she's from a different culture. And um, uh, anyway, that, that's sort of incidental. But they obviously process grief differently than, than I do. Anyway, I noticed that her husband hadn't been walking with her for a while. And so I saw her in the park uh, last week. And God's spirit just said, you need to reach out to her. Something's different. And I said, Miss um, Sharma, um, I noticed that you're not walking with your husband. Is he OK? And she said, no, he died. And um, that was just the spirit was inviting me in. And um, so we talked, and she wanted to tell me. She told me about his funeral and how 300 people had showed up and how powerful it was. But she basically also told me that her life was over. She said, I don't think God has anything more for me to do. And I, my children are grown. And you could tell this woman did not know anything about processing her grief. Because she was going to just bury it all herself. And she was going to crumble. So we've set up some, some times for calls. Could I, just, could, could I just come talk to you? I, and I use the pastor card. I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I, I do this. I walk with people all the time that are going through times. Could we just have coffee? She said, yeah. That would mean a lot to me. And then here's her parting comment. She said, don't tell any of the neighbors. Because <laughs> 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 you lost your husband. We can probably figure it out for ourselves because y'all aren't walking together anymore. But that was a door that I felt like God was opening up, that I could walk through. 
And uh, we've scheduled a time for our first cup of coffee. And um, I think God's going to meet us in that encounter. So thank you all for your time. Amen. Thank you.